Thank you for listening to this audio recording from the pastoral team at Church of the Redeemer, an Anglican church in Greensboro, North Carolina. If you'd like to know more about Church of the Redeemer, its ministry, or its mission, then visit us online at RedeemerGSO.org. Growing up in my family, we camped a lot, and we spent many nights in Smithville, Texas, where we owned about 20 acres. And in one particular trip, my stepfather and I went out for the weekend, and we pitched our tent, went fishing on our pond, and that night went to bed, and a major storm came through. It rained eight inches in one night. Now, eight inches may not sound like much, but let me give you an image. We had just dug um, a four-acre pond, imagine four football fields, a little bit more, 30 feet deep at the deepest end. It filled up in one night, and we were camping in it. (laughs) The tent stakes kept falling down coming uprooted. The tent kept falling on us all throughout the night. We were going back out trying to get it to stick and to hold. And one particular time we got up and we we unzipped the opening and looked out and all the ground was just water. And I literally saw our ice chest just floating on by. (laughs) I remember at one point I was thinking, what were the people around us doing in their nice cozy homes? They're probably sitting there watching a movie, eating popcorn playing cards, just kind of just chilling while we're sitting there like we're fighting for our lives. There's a big difference between a tent and a house. One is far more stable and secure and permanent than the other. In the passage we're looking at this morning, we're going to see Paul use these two images to help us, to encourage us to fix our eyes on our eternal home. So turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1, either in your Bibles or your Bible apps. And as you're turning there, please join me in praying. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you're with us right here, right now. And I ask that you would give us thirsty hearts thirsty for the spring of living water to speak to us, which is you, to speak to us through your word. Prepare our hearts, give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and we invite your spirit to do whatever you want to do in us this morning. Holy Spirit, come. But we offer our hearts to you. Please speak. Please transform. Please heal. In the beautiful name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. So verse 1 begins, we look at verses 1 through 8, we're going to see that Paul is trying to encourage us that courage is found when we fix our eyes upon our eternal home. Look with me at verse 1. Now, if we know that that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. Immediately, he's diving in. And tent was was a common image used in the days of Paul to describe what life was like living on earth. There's suffering, there's hardships, your your tent stakes get rooted up, your house comes collapsing in on you through suffering, through pain, through struggles, which he's been talking about. Like in verse 7 and 8, he says, we're pressed on every side, we're perplexed, we're persecuted, we're struck down. 
So it's an image that people would have understood pretty quickly. Yeah, that's what life is like living on earth. But we have an eternal home waiting for us. And when you look at the whole passage, eternal home is not just talking about heaven. It's talking about our resurrected bodies that we're going to be clothed in and that we're going to live for all eternity in the new heavens and new earth. Revelation 21, 22, worth going back to read. So he's beginning to make this, this, this contrast, and he says, but meanwhile, look at verse 2, we groan. And then later on in verse 4, we groan and we are burdened. In other words, we're living life on earth, groaning and burdened through afflictions and suffering. Life is just hard, and especially when you begin to live for Jesus Christ. Your problems don't decrease, they increase of what it means to invest your life pouring into others, to love them, to serve them, to honor Christ in all you think and you say and you do. As Chris is here with the annual commission for foreign missions of, with, and I forgot the name of the mission agency, I'm winging this one, but just the idea of going to unreached people groups. And God gives people a heart for that stuff like that. God gives us a heart and it was going to increase our suffering because Christ is worthy of it. But he said, but take hope because of your future home, where you will be forever and ever. Look at verse 5. He says, now God created us for this very purpose. He made us for this very purpose, to be with him for all eternity, in new heavens, new earth, beyond our wildest dreams, how it's going to be. God redeemed you, brought you to himself so that you could enjoy him, and he enjoy you for all eternity. Therefore, verse 6 and verse 8, therefore we have great confidence. He repeats it twice to make sure we get this. The, ter- the word can be also trans- translated as we have great courage or we are of good cheer, meaning because of our eternal home, because we don't live by sight, we live by faith, by trusting God and his word. That's reality, far more than what we just see. He said, because of that, we are confident. We're always of good cheer because we fix our eyes on our eternal home with Jesus Christ in our resurrected bodies. No more aches, no more pains, no more vertigo that I had all last this week. It's worth taking time to sit and let this soak in. All throughout church history, men and women have sat and soaked with this, and it transforms them. It brings them courage. When we focus on our eternal home, it gives us hope. In the 1950s, Professor Kurt Richter, professor at John Hopkins, did a famous psychological experiment with rats. The experiment was cruel, but had life-altering results. The first experiment, he took 12 rats. And one at a time, he placed them into a bucket of water to see how long they would swim until they drowned. The average was 15 minutes. Some 10, some 20, but the average was 15 minutes. And he put, then, then, then he took another set of rats and he put them again in the same vat of water. And when they were going under, about to drown in about 15 minutes, he would rescue them, dry them off, give them rest. A while later, put them back into the bucket of water to see how long they would swim the second time. So he and the the students are sitting there documenting everything. It's 15 minutes. It's 30 minutes on average. Keeps going an hour. 
five hours, 10 hours, 20 hours, 40 hours. The average rat swam 60 hours. One actually swam 84 hours because they had been rescued, because they had hope. Men and women, that's us. That is us. No matter what we're going through, it's not going to last forever. It's momentary light afflictions in 2 Corinthians 4, 16 through 18. It doesn't even begin to compare the eternal weight of glory, being with Jesus in the new heavens, new earth for all eternity. And when we fix our eyes on our eternal home, we take time to ponder and sit and reflect and allow the Spirit of God to breathe this into us and transform us and galvanize us, it gives us courage to persevere and do the will of the Father. The difference is hope. Fixing our eyes on our eternal home not only brings us courage, but also brings us purpose. Look at 2 Corinthians 5, 9. He says, so, continuation of thought. I'm really good at grammar, not really. We make it our goal to please him. In light of what he's just been talking about, in light of the goodness of Jesus Christ, in light of his incredible love for us and his grace, not just here on earth, but what awaits us, in light of our eternal home and his goodness to us, we make it our ambition. We make it our goal. We make it our aim and all of life to please him as a way to express our love and gratitude back to him. Living to please Christ is the ambition of a disciple of Jesus Christ. But we also make it our aim to please him, not just because of, the, of what he's done in our lives and our future that waits us, but if we continue to look, we also live our life to please him in verse 10. For, continuation of thought, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive what is due him, him or her, for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Look at verse 11. Since then, we know what it is to fear the Lord. The reality of us going for the judgment seat of Christ caused Paul a fear of the Lord, not a terror but a holy awe, that one day we will be held accountable with our lives. And if you continue to read the rest of chapter 5, it compelled him to be involved in a ministry of seeking and saving the lost. It compelled him to be in ministry, to build relationships as an ambassador of Christ, seeking to bring people to faith in Christ so that when they experience the judgment of Christ, they'll go to heaven for all eternity, not in a place of eternal judgment. There's a holy fear knowing that we will be held accountable. I got to be honest. We don't hear much about that judgment seat of Christ in today's world. You don't hear it in very many sermons. You don't read about it in very many blogs or podcasts or books. It used to be written a whole lot more about in church history. The early church fathers and the monastics, they talked a whole lot about some of the giants of the faith, talked a whole lot about fixing our eyes on not just our eternal home, but knowing that one day we will be held accountable. At the end of Revelation, after the new heavens and new earth, Revelation 21, 22, you read, behold, I am coming soon, says Jesus. My recompense is with me 
to repay everyone for what they have done. I'm, exp- I'm suspecting that some of you are experiencing resistance in your heart right now. And I want to encourage you to pay attention to that. To pay attention when you resist something that maybe sound different or weird, because I really feel like I'm hoping that as I walk through this text and explain this more to you, that some of that resistance will go away. Oh, that's what you mean. But I also want to encourage you that as long as you have that resistance in you and don't work it through, through the word of God and the spirit of God and talking to others about it, that this is never going to sink in and have the kind of impact that God wants it to have on you. So let me try to walk through verse 10 to explain what it means. First, the phrase is, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. That word can be translated, make manifest. It's not that we're just going to appear before the judgment of Christ, but that he's going to make manifest our lives. The things that in darkness will be made, will be brought into the light. He talks about being judging not just our deeds, our good works, but also our character and our motives. Hebrews 4.13, no creature is hidden from his sight, but everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must all give an account. It should cause us to have a fear of the Lord in this, but not a terror. Let me keep going. The term judgment seat in Greek actually reads bema seat. And it was common in the days of, of the, Roman Empire, the Roman cities that there would be a bema seat. And it was, there was one in Corinth where Paul was writing to. The term describes a judgment seat or a tribunal where the Roman governor would sit and someone who was accused would come before them and he would hear their defense. The defense of an accused person standing before him. Paul himself had been standing before the, the bema seat in, in Corinth. You can read about it in Acts 18. He had to stand there, so he knew what it meant. Even the church of Corinth would have known what he meant because there's one right there. It would have been an image that was common in that day. But what is the purpose of judgment? And what is the purpose of the judgment seat of Christ? Allow me to sidebar. There are two judgments talked about in scriptures. One is the judgment of believers and one is the judgment for non-believers, those who don't know or follow Jesus Christ. The first one, the judgment seat of Christ, is for believers only, and it's for the level of rewards. The second is for unbelievers, read about it in Revelation 20, and it is for the level of punishment. Believers will never, please hear me this, hear me. Believers will never, ever be punished for their sins. Never. Jesus Christ, when he died on the cross, he took God's punishment for you in full. There is no condemnation for those in Jesus Christ, none. As far as the east is from the west, he's removed our transgressions from us. When he cried, it is finished on the cross, that means that his, he paid the penalty in full. And God's wrath and justice is satisfied through Christ's death in our place. So all the sins all the bad motives, all the bad words that you've ever said in your life, the bad works, the not, ple- not pleasing to him, you will never be punished for those because Jesus took those for you once and for all. Amen? That's the gospel. That's what we live for and die for. So hopefully that will alleviate some misconceptions. 
but we still will be held accountable with how we lived our lives. So let me mention this. At death, the eternal destiny of every person is already set. For believers and followers of Christ, we will certainly, for sure, promise, guaranteed, spend an eternity with Christ, new heavens, new earth, and a place of eternal joy. For unbelievers, they will spend an eternity apart from Jesus in a place of punishment. For they refuse to receive that Christ paid the penalty for them, so they're going to experience that punishment themselves. But the judgment seat, so here's what it's saying is, the judgment seat is not to see if you and I are saved. That's settled. The moment we place our trust in Christ for the forgiveness of our sins and follow him, that's settled. Our eternal destiny is settled. What the judgment seat of Christ is for is level of rewards. The great white throne judgment is for level of judgment. So what happens when we appear before the judgment seat of Christ? Well, we will be held accountable with how we lived our lives. You probably are familiar with the parable of the talents or the parable of the ten minas. You can read about those in Luke 12 and Matthew 25 if you're not familiar with them. And both of those is the idea that the master gave to his servants um, resources. We would say time, talent, and treasures. and said, go build my business. Go do my work. So you and I are given resources, time, talent, and treasures. In both of those parables, they're held accountable when the master comes back. And they, some of them hear, well done, my good and faithful servant. You now have more responsibility in the, in the new kingdom. So there's a sense of not only hearing praise, but also receiving rewards. Paul elaborates more on this in 1 Corinthians 3. Don't turn there, but just know 1 Corinthians 3, 10 through 15 Paul writes even more, elaborates more on the judgment seat of Christ. And he says, every one of us is building a house on a foundation of Jesus Christ. And our house is our lives, our ministries, our everything. So we're building our lives and our ministries upon the foundation of Christ. And he says that each one's work will become manifest, there's that word again, for the day of judgment will reveal it. Because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the, on the foundation of Christ survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. So what it looks like is going to be God's holy fire, his holy justice, is going to evaluate the works of our lives. We also know it's not just the things we did, but it's also our motives. And the good works will pass through the fire and we will be rewarded. The bad works will burn up. There's a sense of loss. I got to be honest. It literally causes the fear of God in me to think about how many sermons I've preached to impress you or to impress people in the congregation. I'm not out of a deep love for Jesus. They're going to burn. That motivates me to want to live my life to please my Father. It helps shift in my heart. Lord, let it be about you and your kingdom. Let it be about loving you and loving people, not about building my own kingdom. You see how it purifies? No matter how nice of a work that you do in the world's eyes, 
they may be burning up in God's holy gaze. We live for the audience of one. Do you see how fixing our eyes in our eternal home galvanizes our purpose in life? I want to live my life to please him, not just because of all the good things he's done for me and does for me in my future, because there's an incredible, passionate love for me. I want to love him in return. And you live to please the one that you love, but also to know that I'll be held accountable. When our focus is on our future, it changes our present. We live today in light of our tomorrow. We want to hear well done and experience the rewards that are ours for all eternity. So how we live today does affect tomorrow. So what will a person actually receive? Well, you can look at a lot of different passages. This is all throughout the Old Testament and New Testament. And it kind of, they use three different words, compensate, compensate, recompense. I don't use that term recompense in my everyday language, so I actually had to look that up. Kind of sort of thought I knew what it meant. Rewards. But basically the idea is praise and rewards. If you were a Greensboro fellow this year, if you remember Thad Barnum teaching us, good for you. Bishop Thad Barnum spoke in the ministry of the Holy Spirit, very kind man. And when he said good for you when someone was sharing about their story. Your heart just welled up. How much more do we long to hear that from our Heavenly Father? So it's also rewards. Well done, my good and faithful servant, but there's also going to be eternal rewards. And I don't have time to go through all those. To be honest, the scripture is not 100% clear on what those are, but it, does, it is clear that they will be worth it. And we're going to we hunger for those rewards. So what does a person receive? Praise and rewards. What are good works that will, re, will be rewarded? Well, look at the previous verse, verse 9. Works that are done to please Jesus Christ. Works that are done out of a heart to live out the great commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Love your neighbors yourself. When your motivation is love, 1 Corinthians 13, when your motivation is to love God and love people, you can be honored for that and rewarded for that. When you invest your time and talent and treasures, to pour into building God's kingdom, you're going to be rewarded and honored for that. Your good works. Now, it doesn't just mean those done in ministry. I don't, I don't, I don't know how to word this because I, I, I love the word ministry. But sometimes we get the idea, oh, well, it's only going to be when I'm leading a small group Bible study or it's only going to be when I'm sharing my faith. Those good works will be rewarded, but not when I go to work at my job. Not when I'm studying for school as a high schooler and I, i got to take physics? Really? It's not when I'm playing on a sports team. No, it doesn't really matter. That's just going to burn. It doesn't really matter to God. What really matters is ministry. That's not true. When you have a biblical view of what it means to build God's kingdom, it means everything we're doing, we're doing to please and honor Jesus Christ. And all of life can be categorized as ministry. It means in your vocation, when you're going to work, to please the Lord, and you're doing your work wholeheartedly as for the Lord than for men, for the well-being of other people, the way you treat people at work, the way that you're involved in a business that's for the well-being of others. Well, I work at Triad Tech. We just tell people the computers. That's not really going to matter to the Lord. That's not true because you're helping businesses thrive and flourish that are really helping people. That matters. You'll be rewarded for the good works that you do to please Christ while you work. 
in your in ministry. I, I, I mean, I'm gonna. That's one reason why it's worth sacrificing to serve people in direct ministry at church, at Church of Redeemer, parachurch, mentoring someone in young life, hanging out with a high school kid here, and our um, I don't like kid, high school student. Thank you. Where your work as parents, when you're loving your parent, your children, and they want to cause you to just to scream. And you choose in love to forgive and be patient. God says, well done. Good for you. Your faithfulness will be rewarded and honored. Well, that's not really a good motive. What's really a good motive is just, I just need to please the Lord to glorify him. That's true. But God does give this as a motive, or he wouldn't make it so clear in Scripture that one day I'm going to be held accountable, and I want to hear, well done. I'll be honest. There are times in my life when I, if I'm speaking out of the flesh, and I want to say harmful words to Becky because I'm mad at her, I'm going to make her pay, I will be held accountable before the holy God when I say things to hurt her. Those works will burn. The next time it comes up, Every careless word and hurtful word I speak, it serves as an impetus, as a motivation to say, nope, not going that direction. Because sometimes my love for my wife is puny and my love for me is huge. You see why we need this motivation? We need both, love and accountability. This is what I'm hoping that you come away with. Fixing your eyes on your eternal home, it's worth it. Take time to sit with texts like this. Sit with Revelation 21, 22. Soak in it, meditate on it, journal on it, pray over it, talk to people about it. There's a lot of passages on it. And let it sink in. Let your divine imagine be awakened by the Holy Spirit. And realize this is your eternal destiny. It is more certain than the chair you're sitting on. Because a chair may fall apart. But your eternal home waiting for you will never fall apart. And may that rivet in you not only courage, because hope, hope, but also courage. I want to live my life with a single purpose of pleasing Christ. May you and I fix our eyes on Jesus and our eternal destiny. May we all hear, well done, my good and faithful servant. Let me pray. Father, we love you. We worship you. And if anyone in this morning is hearing this and they're wondering about their eternal judgment, if they don't know you, they're not confident that they know you, please lead them to come talk to me or Alan or Benjamin, any of the priests or deacons here. And for those of you, them people, Father, this is hard to hear. If anyone's struggling with this doctrine, please lead them to come talk, to come pray with us. We love you. We worship you. We pray this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.